Well, for some reason, I'm for some reason I am feeling emotional this morning. I uh, will try not to allow that to break into my preaching in more ways than one. And when I say emotional, I'm talking about weepy emotional. It just seems like a number of the things that have been said this morning and the hymns we're singing and they're touching a chord in me, and I'm I'm thankful for that, but. We don't have a mindless religion and we don't have an emotionless religion. And when the, the gospel of Christ reaches us, when our Father deals with us by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, we, we're, we're affected at multiple levels. And uh, so I, that's a good thing. And it's not always the same. Not every week is the same. Not every day is the same. But... I'll tell you something, someone who is always the same, and that is the God who is at work. And uh, that's the hope that we have, really. And we're going to try to look at this passage this morning in Matthew chapter 16 that volumes have been written on. This is one of those passages that if you were to do a search in sermon audio, you'll find pages of sermons on. And there are all different kinds of ways of approaching this. Well, you're going to see how I'm going to approach it this morning. And I trust there'll be some blessing in it. Beginning at verse 13, Matthew 16, verse 13, we'll read through verse 20. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Do you think Jesus cared? There's probably more than one reason why he asked the question, but I think he probably did at some level. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, and this is where where his concern was really focused, but who do you say that I am? My followers, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Excuse me. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Your earthly father didn't reveal this to you. You're the son of Bar-Jonah, or excuse me, of Jonah. But Jonah didn't reveal this to you. He may have taught you, he may have instructed you, he may have catechized you, but he didn't reveal this to you. Flesh and blood can't do that. I've tried to do that with my children. Some of you have tried to do it with your children. The flesh and blood can't do that. But my Father, which is in heaven. My Father, he says. Not your Father, Simon. My Father. Who is in heaven. That's my Father. And I also say to you that you are Peter. 
And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades. I know the King James, Old King James translates that hell. And that's not a... Hades is a transliteration. It's the Greek word Hades. And so it's just Hades because it can mean more than one thing. It is the place of the departed. And we'll touch upon that as time allows uh, this morning, not going deeply into it, but it can refer to hell. But remember, this is not the lake of fire because Hades, what he's talking about here, Hades and death will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what Revelation tells us. So there is a difference between Hades, or hell, as it's translated in the Old King James, and the lake of fire concept of hell that you find later on in the book of Revelation. So this is the place of the departed. And I will give you the keys. So the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. Now, these these words of Jesus have sadly been the source of a great deal of controversy. And I know we could get bogged down today looking at the various viewpoints and and there's a time for that. My burden today is to hear the heart of what Jesus is saying to his disciples and by experience. Extension, really, to you and I who have believed the word of those disciples. Remember, Jesus prayed not only for them, but for those who would believe on their word. And so this is this is to us by extension. And, and, and I and I'm not going to be be able to uh, unpack in a full way everything that's in this passage. I'm not even going to try to. So some of you may be disappointed. But I trust there'll be some encouragement here for you. What Jesus says he will do. He says, I will do something. I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And I will bind and loose. I will. He's talking about something that he's definitely going to do. It sounds like he's talking about something that he's not yet doing or it's certainly not done. It's something that lies in the future. It is a future tense. But Jesus says he will do it. And what he says he will do, he has been doing and continues to do. Now, it's significant that Matthew is the only gospel writer that records Jesus' words in verses 18 and 19. In fact, that seems so significant. These words seem so significant. You would think they would be in every gospel account, but they're not. The words prior to that are. Or at least a form of those words are. But not verses 18 and 19. Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And Jesus is speaking in a Jewish context that had only known the revelation of God given through Moses and the hands of angels. As well as the warnings and promises of the prophets. So the old covenant And the words of the prophets or the law and the prophets, as he says earlier in in Matthew chapter five. And Jesus is progressively revealing himself and his mission to his Jewish disciples as he speaks the words of his father. He is not alone in his work. And here he unveils in an overview manner the mystery 
that will come to full light through the apostolic ministry of Peter. And then really even more clearly through Paul. But here he speaks, Paul isn't on the scene yet. And he's speaking to the twelve and he's focusing really on Peter in this particular context. Now, as we hear Jesus promise, I will build my church and and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and I will bind and 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 uh, and loose and, and so forth. As we hear those words, we have the full advantage or maybe I should say a fuller advantage of the full revelation perspective. Like was said in the last hour, we have it all, don't we? We have everything that God has revealed for this age. In other words, in other words we have the completion of the Scriptures as well as 2,000 years of seeing this unfold. So what did Jesus mean by what He says? Well, we look at the rest of Scripture as... It is revealed, and then we look at the 2,000 years of the unfolding of what Jesus said. Now, these disciples were hearing things they had never heard before. As Jesus continues to prepare them for their part in what He promises He will do in this new covenant age. And I think that's significant. Remember, talking to Jews in a Jewish context... The book of Matthew, particularly a Jewish, a gospel to a Jewish mindset. And it's in that context that he's saying what he's saying in verses 18 and 19, distinguishing that which we know to be the old covenant from that which is the new covenant in Jesus Christ that will continue to unfold as Jesus lives his life. He dies. He rises again. And the full revelation of the new covenant comes forward and the outworking of it in the New Testament and, of course, in the day and age in which we presently live. Now, Jesus is speaking directly to Peter in verses 18 and 19. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter. And in verse 19, I will give you, that's not plural, that's singular. I'll give thee, as the old King James identifies it. I give thee, I give it to you. And whatever you, Peter, bind on earth. So he is speaking to Peter. It is only, though, as Peter confesses what he confesses, that Jesus then turns to him and speaks directly to him. Now, while Peter will be greatly used in laying the foundation of the New Testament church, remember, well, you may not know this, and so it may not be a remember, but if you read the book of Acts, you'll find Peter's name used at least 50 times in the first 12 chapters of Acts. He's a major player, we might say. He is certainly used of Christ in a very particular, powerful way in the establishing of what we know to be the New Testament church. But he has no authority above any other apostle. None of the twelve understood Peter to be superior. How do we know that? Well, just a little short time after this interaction in chapter 18, they were asked, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they certainly didn't view Peter to be any greater than them. Although Peter was among those who were jo- who was jockeying for position, right? As the greatest in the kingdom. And you know 
what Jesus said to them. In fact, we'll be getting to some of those concepts here in future messages in this chapter. You remember when Paul withstood Peter to his face? That would be strange if Peter had some sort of superiority. And so while Peter was blessed, Jesus says so in verse 17, he stands as a representative of all who are blessed with the revelation of the Father regarding His only begotten Son. And so he says, you are Peter, not just Simon, son of Barjona. You are Peter. Now, at an earlier time, Jesus has said, and it's recorded in John 1.42, you will be called, you will be called Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for the Greek word that is translated Peter. You will be called Cephas. And he says there in John, there's parentheses, which is a stone or a rock or Peter. And so here, Jesus now calls him what he said he would call him. I will, you will be called. Now he is calling him Peter, following his confession of who Jesus is, which was revealed by his father. Peter identifies, excuse me, Jesus identifies Peter as a stone that would be part of the foundation of the church that he will build. He says, and I also say to you, that you are Peter, and on this rock, a form of the same word that's translated Peter, on this rock I will build my church. What is Jesus talking about when he says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, is he saying, you are Peter, and on you, Peter, I will build my church. Well, it seems quite clear to me that if Jesus intended that, there would be a, a, a more consistent way of saying it in the context of which he's speaking here. Because he is speaking to Peter. I say to you. And then in verse 19, I will give you and whatever you. So he is singling Peter out in a very specific way. But he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And he doesn't say, and on you I will build my church. He says, on this rock. I will build my church. What do you suppose Peter understood? Let me read 1 Peter chapter 2. Because by the time, uh, by the time this all develops, Peter has a, f- a full understanding of what Jesus meant. And listen to what Peter wrote. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. And by the way, let's not get hung up on the little rock, big rock thing. Okay? There's all kinds of... I need to stay out of the weeds here and just stick with my point. There's all kinds of thoughts. And if any of you go delving into commentaries, you're going to read pages upon pages of disagreeable things, disagreeing things and so forth, even by people that you might like. Coming to him to a living as to a living stone. That's Jesus Christ, a living rock, a living stone. That word stone, there's not the same Greek word as used in our text, but that doesn't matter. That's not the issue. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, Peter says, as living stones, the same word that used of Jesus. 
You, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. This, this, this stone that he's talking about that he calls the, that Isaiah called the cornerstone. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Peter's not rejecting this stone. Peter's confessing this stone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus was not that to Peter. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you, Peter says, and and he's including himself in this, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may claim, proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter understood Jesus to be referring not to himself as the stone, the foundation stone, the corner stone. He knows that Jesus, at least by the time that he writes the epistle, he knows who Jesus is referring to. You are Peter. And upon this rock, this rock cannot be Peter. For no mere man is a sufficient rock upon which to build what Jesus is talking about here. The church, which is also referred to as a spiritual house. It's also referred to as a temple. These are various images that the Scriptures give to that which Jesus is talking about. The church is another image, and there's a lot involved in this word that we'll not be able to unpack this morning. But think about this. Believers within Israel of old knew Jehovah God as the rock of their salvation. That is a repeated reference in the Old Testament Scriptures. David referred to Jehovah as the rock of my salvation. Whoever wrote Psalm 95 said, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Whoever the rock, Jesus is referring to the, to the rock. That can't be Peter. Peter is not Yahweh. He's not Jehovah. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, he refers to the fathers who drank that spiritual rock, the fathers of Israel, who drank of that spiritual rock. And Paul helps us out. Parentheses. That rock was Christ. On this rock can be nothing less than the Christ, the Son of the living God whom Peter has confessed. And while Peter and the other apostles are referred to as the foundation of the church in Ephesians 2 and verse 20, and in fact, in Revelation 21 and verse 14, you'll see the twelve apostles' names were on the foundation of the New Jerusalem, which is a picture of the glorious church that is, that is yet to be assembled. 
And so they definitely were used as we'll, as we, if we get that far this morning, we will, we will show that. And talk about that. We have to talk about it from the text here. This is the foundation upon which Jesus builds. But Jesus is the chief cornerstone without whom there would be no foundation. There would be no church. There is, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there is no other foundation upon which upon which has been built except Jesus Christ. So Jesus says with absolute authority to this small band of disciples. And think about this. Jesus is speaking to this small group, this band of Jewish disciples, and he's unfolding what he's going to do. He's unfolding what's coming incrementally, progressively. And he's already saying, I am what you have confessed. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. But that's not the end of the story. You need to know who I am. But there's something that I'm going to do that probably as you first see it is not going to look like I am the Christ, the son of the living God. It's not going to look like I'm going to be able to accomplish what I intend to accomplish. So Jesus is saying with absolute authority to this small band of disciples who will worry. They did not expect him to rise from the dead. Do you know that? They were shocked when the word came that he was raised from the dead. They had a very small understanding of the fullness of the gospel. And so in a few months, they're going to witness the dark days that surrounded his death. So it is very significant that Jesus says what he says to them on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And let me try to summarize this monumental promise of Jesus with the the rest of the New Testament unpacks it. And so clearly I can only say a limited amount this morning. But let me just try to summarize some thoughts with you that I hope will be helpful. And I'll do it by pursuing three different questions. What will Jesus build? Who will build the church? And how will he build it? What will Jesus build? He says, my church. Now, by church, he is speaking of an identifiable community of people. The fundamental meaning of the word behind church is simply a called out for the purpose of assembly. Called out. It's not a, this is not a unique word. This is a word that was very familiar to the disciples, to the Jews, to the Greeks of that day. The, 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 the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures used this word in reference to even Israel. They were called a congregation. They were referred to as assemblies. In fact, Stephen, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 7, referred to the church in the wilderness. Um, Newer translations will say the congregation in the wilderness. That's the New King James or assembly in the wilderness. And then the secular world of that day, it was very it was a very common word. It, it referred to a, an, a, an assembly. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, it's used three times in verse 32, 39, and 41 when Paul was in Ephesus and there was a riot. And the riot was because there was an assembly. And, and, and someone rose up and said, you know, we don't want to be an unlawful assembly. But, but, it, but it was a gathering together, an ecclesia, as it were. The, the word was just... 
It was very common. But what Jesus does is He takes this familiar word and He adds one word to it. My. My. I will build my church. And so He's not attacking or trying to rearrange the meaning of the word, the Greek word church. He's simply taking that which was well known and well understood. He doesn't define it. And then He says, What I am going to build is going to be mine. He will build a community of people. An assembly. Not identified as Old Testament Israel was by genealogy and the Mosaic law. But it will be identified in a different way. He is speaking of those whose identity will be vitally linked to Him. Not even vitally linked to a creed or a confession. Not that that's, there's not significance in creeds or confessions, but that's not the fundamental point Jesus is making here. My church. The church is identified fundamentally by its relation to Jesus, whom Peter confessed. It's after his confession that he says what he says. Upon this rock, I will build my church. It will later be called the church of God. That's interesting. I think it's eight or ten times in the New Testament you find the church of God. You might think it would be called the church of Jesus or the church of Christ, but it's the church of of God. And it wouldn't be wrong to say church of Jesus or church of Christ because who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? He's the son of the living God. But it's interesting that that's the, the now listen to this. First Corinthians chapter one and verse two to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Interesting. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, that's identifying the church. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. 1 Timothy 3, verse 5. For if a man, the the qualifications of an elder, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? This is what Jesus is referring to. It's that which will come to be known as the church of God or the church of the living God. First Timothy chapter three and verse 15. What Jesus calls my church is God's church. Now, that is significant. It is not his church apart from the father. It is not his church apart from the spirit. It's God's church. Do you understand that it requires, can I say it that way, Father, Son, and Spirit to build this church? This is the church that Jesus says, it's mine. There's something distinguishable about it. It's not like all the other churches or congregations or assemblies, secular or religious. It's unique. First Thessalonians chapter one and verse one 
to the church. We, we sort of breeze past some of these introductions in the letters to the churches, but to the church of the Thessalonians in. Now, what would you expect to hear to the church of the Thessalonians in? You would expect here in Christ, right? Would you be wrong in saying that the church was in Christ? No, you wouldn't. But Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not a Greek grammarian, but when I read that, I'm hearing God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who God is, isn't he? The Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that might not be, as we say, exegetically acceptable, but it's the biblical truth, you see. And so it is God's church identified by its relation to Jesus as confessed by Peter. And that confession was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Brethren, this church that Jesus says He will build is the glory of the new covenant. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3? See, this is, this, is not a, this is not a minor key in the unfolding of God's world. This is not a, a minor point in the purpose of God in creation. This is huge. This is a culmination, you see, of what He intended from the very beginning. In Ephesians chapter 3, in verse Let's begin at verse uh, verse three, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. That's the confession, remember, the Christ, the son of the living God. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. Not in the way it's now being made known, you see. And it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. Jesus is speaking to Peter as an apostle. Later, He'll speak to the whole band of apostles. And they were significant in the formation, the foundation, the unveiling of this mystery, as well as the outworking of it. And what is it? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the Gospel. Through the Gospel. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective or effectual working of His power. And then he goes on to speak of his preaching among the Gentiles, which was necessary. And I don't know that we'll get there today, but I'll try to. But, but, but that's fundamental to the outworking of the building, you see, of the church. And to make all, verse, verse 9, see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now... This is something new. This is not something that existed before Jesus speaking the things that He's speaking. But now, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known 
by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we are seeing here, then, and then verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And then in chapter 4, the unity and Michael referred to that in the last hour, so I'll skip that emphasis. But the unity that is intended in the very nature of that which Christ intends, this is what he's building. And by the way, when he talks about I will build my church, he's not just talking about redeeming or saving. He's not just talking about getting you to heaven. That word I will build can also be translated edify. And it's a building up. And it includes all that is intended in the life of that which he is calling his church. You see. The church, then, is not the continuation of Old Testament Israel. But it is the fulfillment in Christ of all that was foreshadowed and promised for all of those generations prior. It is the ultimate expression of His glory in this world until the redeemed of all the ages are assembled as the church of the firstborn. Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 23, by the way, that's where it's all headed to that great gathering, that general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which will include all the redeemed of all the ages. But but let me pause here for a second. And you're going to hear me as I continue. You're going to say, well, what do you believe, preacher? Do you believe in the universal or do you believe in the local church? Do you believe in the visible or do you believe in the invisible? You're going to get all hung up on that. And I, I would like for you not to get all hung up on that. And I think it's sometimes when we get into these kind of technicalities, we, we, we are led into a place of murkiness and confusion that misses the bigger issue that we should have our minds upon. I mean, let me ask you this. Did Christ die for me or did he, did he die for us? Yeah. You see the point? And so whatever we're talking about, especially in this issue of I will build my church, we can talk about something that is specific, local, visible, and we can talk about something that's also bigger, and we can talk about something that is ultimate. Hebrews 12 and verse 23. And so please don't stumble. I hope you won't shut me down because I'm not ringing your bell with whatever language I may be using. And I'm not trying to do the middle of, middle of the road thing. I'm trying to be as biblical as I can and getting the heart of Jesus, the heart of God and what he really is intending, what he really is building. And let me just say this, that were Jesus speaking of the church only as the community of all the redeemed that will assemble in heaven one day or all of the redeemed that may live on earth right now, wherever they might be. If that's all, if that's all that he has in mind, then it seems to me that verse 19 is a bit out of place. Now, I think you can make an application in that way. But he is, you notice what he says. He says, whatever you bind on earth. Whatever you lose, he's talking about earth. He's talking about something going on right now on this planet in space and time. And it seems like the words that he uses there, which he will also use again in chapter 18. In fact, we're really going to unpack more of this thought when we get to chapter 18 than we will this morning, because it's the very same language that is used. But 
But he must be talking about something that is going on right now. And so this church includes all who are in Christ. And those who function in assemblies right now. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul wrote, if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. That's strange language. If he's not talking about something concrete, specific, something that's even organized in some way. He says, because he says that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so we can't exclude, nor nor should should we want to really, we can't exclude that which we understand, which the Bible says are the churches of the Lord, the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So I've given you some idea of what Jesus is meaning when He says on this rock, I will build my church. It's something that's going on now. It's something that you can see, but it is something that is ultimate that's going to involve all the aggregate of all believers of all ages. And I would even include in that those who will join from pre-cross times, Old Testament. There will be this grand and glorious union in eternity, I do not believe in the concept of there being this sort of compartmentalized heaven where, you know, I've heard people say it something like this, that, you know, the church will be down uh, on the field around the table with Jesus and the Old Testament saints and everyone else will be in the grandstands looking on. Ooh, I, I just find that to be you, I know you might think, really, somebody actually says that. Yes, yes, I. I had to wrestle with that kind of teaching in my lifetime. Some of you probably have as well. But let's move beyond that. Who? Who will build the church? Who? He says, I will build my church. I will do it. Whatever other answer you may give, and there are other answers that might fit in, as we'll see. But any answer that doesn't begin and end with Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, is a wrong answer. And this is a very personal matter to Jesus. He says, I will build my... He's taking it upon Himself to see that that which He intends to be, will be. I will build my church. He promises... Or we may say promise because this is past tense, but it is a promise that continues. He promises to build a community of redeemed souls who are identified by their relation to Him and His to them. That reciprocal relationship. You see, you say, well, you know, I, I, I'm in His church because I'm a member of Community Baptist Church. Well, you can be a member of Community Baptist Church and not be in His church. And the only people that ought to be members of Community Baptist Church are those who are in His church. The redeemed, right? But, but, but Jesus says it's those who are, He's building this community of people who have a relationship with Him and He with them. They are visible in this world as they function in assemblies characterized by His love, which is what He unpacks 
through the, through his own words and the apostles through the rest of the New Testament. Peter, nor any mere man. Listen to this. Peter, and this is what is so troubling when people want to focus on Peter in this passage. And I can understand why they do it if you're just reading the, the language. But if you have the Spirit of Christ, I want to be careful there. I don't want to speak harshly. Let me just say that if you see Peter or any man above Jesus Christ, you, you've, you, you've missed the bullseye. You've missed the point. You're off target. Peter, nor any mere man, could ever accomplish what Jesus says. Because, he, because listen, because He is who He is. I said this last week. Because This is why it's so important that we confess with understanding because it's revealed to us that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's because He is who He is that He can do what He says He will do. I will build my church. And doesn't this really echo what was said hundreds of years before by the psalmist in Psalm 127? Unless, unless the Lord builds the house. You don't know how this has affected me. And I confessed to a couple of guys last month when I had to be away. and Maybe I'm being too transparent here. But it was almost as if this church, I had this feeling, this church is being held together by me. And God had to show me in a very concrete way, in a very impactful way, if you are the one building this church, it's not my church. Unless I'm building it. You can claim it for your own. You can put a name on your sign. And you have all kinds of programs going on. You can call it a church. But if it's you that's building it. Hey, Peter, if it's you that's building it. You see the point? This isn't Peter doing it. It isn't the apostles doing it. It's, it's not for the last 2,000 years. It's not, you know, this great missionary and this great preacher and this great church group and, and the Baptists and the Methodists and the whatever. We put so much attention on those things and I, I, I don't want to sound too, too harsh here because in some ways those things, there are some important things there. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes we place far too much significance on a man. Or a group of men. You see, the church that Jesus is building is not a religious organization. Men can build that. And there's plenty of them. And I don't want Community Baptist Church to be one of those. We want a people who are bound together by our confession of Him and in union with Him by His Spirit. That's the kind of church Jesus says he will build and he takes personal interest in his church and which is made visible in individual churches you say preacher there you go again you're talking about the visible i i can't not talk about it you know how i know jesus is interested in church as not just this vague idea of church go read revelation 2 and 3 who walked among the churches who spoke to those churches who was interested in what was going on in those churches? Do you think Jesus, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, is interested in what's going on here at Community Baptist Church? Do you think so? 
In fact, he says that there are all kinds of wrong. There, he, he warned of Paul. Well, Jesus talked about Satan finding his way into the church, and then Paul warned of savage wolves, as he calls them, entering into the church and wreaking havoc, not sparing the flock, as he. You see, the opposition to building the church is more than any mere man could withstand. This is why when I feel the burden, whether it be in some of the problems that we know about in churches that we know about, and I guarantee you there's a lot more of them than just those. When we sense that there's problems within Community Baptist Church, it ought to cause us to run to our head, to run to the one who said, I will build the church. And we ought to cry out to Him, something's wrong. It feels like the gates of Hades are prevailing. Doesn't it sometimes feel that way? You say the gates of Hades. What is that? You know, it could, it can be hell. It can be death. But if we think of it as as hell, the forces of hell, the gates of hell, it's like the gates are opened up. And, and out of that, out of that dark place, the demons of that pit are being unleashed. And you actually see some of that in the book of Revelation, don't you? And there's an all-out attack upon the church that Jesus is building. I can tell you Satan doesn't want Jesus to be successful. He does not want Jesus to succeed in building His church. But if we do not recognize that the enemies um, that are seeking to prevent the success of what Jesus is saying here, if we don't recognize that the victory does not depend upon us, but it depends upon Him, we are going to fight in ways that are going to end up leading us into a pit, into a form of Hades. And we will be prevailed against. And the doors will be shut down. And the candlestick will go out. That's what Jesus warned, didn't He? And we will no longer be the light that we have been called to be in this world. Peter, Peter learned of the destructive power of this great enemy of the church, didn't he? But oh, praise be to our King, our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan didn't defeat Peter. Oh, he he, he caused him to stumble, didn't he? But he didn't fall all the way. He picked him up because Jesus was praying for him. And, and the gates of Hades did not prevail against the church. It didn't prevail against Peter. And Peter's being singled out here. Listen to me. If it didn't prevail against Peter, who has been singled out here, it will not prevail. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church represented here by Peter as one that, that, that one of the stones that make up the spiritual house that Jesus is building in this age. And so only if Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, to whom all authority is given, is building the church, will the gates of Hades or hell not succeed in her destruction. Let me just spend a few moments here. And I'm not going to may not even come to this uh, thought again until we get to Matthew chapter 18 because it'll be repetitive. So I'm just going to give you some some general thoughts here. How will he build it? Who will build the church? Christ. But how's he going to do it? 
Is he going to use people like you and me? What does he say in verse 19? And I see two things here. He is going to use the preaching of the gospel and the instruction of apostolic doctrine and order. And, and as we are in line with that, as we are doing as Peter eventually did, as the Apostle Paul, as the apostles eventually did, as we, as that church at Pentecost, they, they, they were following the apostles' doctrine. And the practice, and it was being learned as the church, as Jesus built what he said he would do. He, I will build my church. There is the redeeming of the sinners. And then there is the edifying, the growing up. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about that and all that goes into that. And Jesus is involved in this, you see. But he uses instruments. I, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And this this has been so confusing. And as I looked at it, I'm thinking, what exactly is this talking about? Because Jesus doesn't really tell us. He just says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so there's a myriad of views on this. But the thought came to me, not only does this... Uh, Building, if you want to view it as a finished product, not only does a building have to be purchased, don't the keys have to be purchased? And so when I thought about the keys of the kingdom of heaven, some of you may have already gone there in your minds, but you have to, you have to go over to, to Revelation, don't you? Revelation chapter one and verse 18. And so John, he fell down as, as it were dead. I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Whoa, if you're the first and the last, I need to be afraid. No, not if you understand who he is in relationship to you, dear believer. I'm the first and the last. And listen to what he says. Verse 18. I am he who lives. And was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. I have the keys. They're mine. What does Jesus say to Peter? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I don't think I'm saying too much to say there's a sense in which those keys were not yet available. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of of heaven. And those keys became available when Jesus died and he rose again. I live and was dead. And what did Peter do with those keys that were given to him? As I said, read it in Acts chapter 1 through 12. The first thing he did at Pentecost was he preached. He preached the gospel. He preached the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, he focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, 
When Paul's speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, he said this, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you realize there would be no keys to the kingdom of heaven and there would be no entrance into the church apart from the shedding of the blood of God, the God man, Jesus Christ and you see, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven is somewhat something that you, that's somewhat, it's invisible. You don't see it. It's in you. It's established in you. It's the reign and the rule of God. But where it is made visible is in the company of the saints who have been born again. And we then become the ones who declare we, the keys of the kingdom. We declare the gospel. And so when that gospel grabs hold of sinners, and they are brought in, they're given eyes to see, and they enter into the kingdom, then they're added to the church, which then is visibly seen in the congregations of the saints that have existed for the last 2,000 years and still exist. And so, Jesus builds His church on the foundation of His message that Peter preached at Pentecost. He builds His church by the empowerment of His Spirit. You see, those keys are really, it's not simply the message, it's the message that the Spirit empowers the church. Those keys get their power from the Holy Spirit. You, you stay put right here. You stay put when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to receive power. And when you receive this power, you're going to be witnesses unto me, Jesus said. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world, you see apart from the power of the Holy Spirit who was imparted the Father and the Son uh, after the resurrection, the ascension of the Son, the Father and the Son dispatched the Holy Spirit to empower the building of the church as these keys, as the gospel message is being proclaimed, the Holy Spirit is at work, empowered by the Spirit of King Jesus. His church is built through our witness. You see, we're involved. But if we, if, you, if we view ourselves to be involved as some sort of, with a disconnect from, I will build my church, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna be messed up. And then he says, whatever you bind on earth, We'll be bound in heaven. A, a better literal translation. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And I, I'm not going to take time to say too much about this. We'll, we'll say more about it when we get to chapter 18. Because the same, very same language is found there. He says, except one exception. Here, Jesus uses the singular. He speaks to Peter. In chapter 18, it's a plural. Speaking to you. In the context of speaking to uh, concerning the church, the apostles and the church. But here he says, I and and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, will have been bound in heaven. Do you hear the difference there between that and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven? That, to say whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven sounds like. Whatever you decide is right or wrong, whatever you decide goes or doesn't go, whatever you decide, then heaven's going to agree with you. 
God's going to agree with you. That's not the point. The point is, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound. In other words, you are doing that which is the commission of, of, the, of the, the dead, buried, risen, ascended Christ. He to whom all authority is given. It is because of the power given to him that we go forth, that we are what we are, and we have the authority that we have. And therefore, as we are implementing in the binding and loosing, when we're implementing the order of Christ that was given to the apostles, recorded in his word in the rest of the New Testament, we are acting in Christ's stead with the authority of heaven as his church here on earth. And so the details, you know, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, gave instructions And without the instructions that he gave, listen to this, that there was going to be problems. I mean, Peter, did Peter want to abandon the food, uh, the the dietary laws? No, no. But the Lord appeared to him and the Lord said, wait a minute, you're you're not binding and loosing properly. You're not understanding. You need further light. And he gave it to him and it was written down. And 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 what about circumcision? Should, should, Should that have been contingent? And we could go, well, what about, we could talk about days and all the observance of the days and the way they were, all of these things. Listen, there were changes in, there are changes, there were, there are in the new covenant. And that's what Jesus, I believe, is talking about. And it's his authority. Because I am the Christ, the son of the living God. I have the authority. Who's the Lord of the Sabbath? He has the authority, you see. And that's, that was his message. And his message to the apostles, eventually they got it. And they wrote these things down. And we've been living for 2,000 years. If we've been living under the light of these things, we've been living this out. And so really Jesus is saying, and I know this is a very cursory explanation, and I say, I'll get to it again in chapter 18, but Jesus is saying that these changes, the binding and loosing that he has in view here, on earth, these changes are part of what he is building in this new covenant age. Now, how certain is it? Let's wrap this up. How certain is it that his church will continue in this world and finally be assembled with all the redeemed of all ages in heavenly, eternal glory? How certain is it? The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, if you believe He is who He is, you ought to have confidence. And so no matter what you hear about today, all of the darkness, the bleakness, somebody sent me a text this morning and said, hey, did you see the recording of so-and-so about something, something? Okay. And, and, it, and it was bleak. You know, the world's falling apart and, 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 and we better fall upon our faces with bewilderment that it's all coming to a crashing halt. And I just wrote back to him. I said, now, of course, I was, you know, meditating on these things. I said, brother, I have a promise. I will build my church. And the gates of hell, Hades, will not prevail. Will not prevail. 
Now, I know there are means and so on and so forth. So, so this is, but this is the basis, you see. This is the, the foundation to it all. I will build my church. Somebody might come and say, we get these things in the mail. Would you like for us to come and present to you a church building program? And my answer is no. What do you mean? You don't want your church to grow? You, you don't want a church building? I don't want yours. I have one. And the one that is building our church has said, I will build my church. We just better make sure that we are in line with what he has said his church is. Right? That is fundamental. But Hades, Hades, it was generally considered the place of the dead. Jesus says, there's nothing. And this is the way I view this without getting off into all the what about this and what about that. Anything that could be a destructive force and bring Jesus' promise to a crashing halt will not succeed. Nothing. And you know how I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt? I know it. Because Hades could not hold him. Read it in Acts chapter 2. This Peter. This Peter that he's talking about preached it. And he quoted the Psalms. And he said, David wasn't talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus. The Christ. His soul could not remain. Could not be held. In Hades nor his fleshy corruption. Jesus arose. And because he arose, I know that what he's saying is true. And every sinner, Jew or Gentile, who identifies by faith with Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, is joined by his Spirit into one body. Seen now in this life, in our generation, in multiple assemblies, finally, to be raised together as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. And Jesus' life guarantees this. You see, brethren, this is why it's important that we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is not some sort of catechism. That's not, yeah, we know that. No, do we know that? Has it been emblazoned upon our souls? Do we know that? Do I know that? Am I confident in Him? And I trust that as a church, this church, that we are part of the fulfillment of what Jesus Christ promised. But I'm going to tell you, the confession of Peter must be the bedrock of who we are. It must be. Other doctrines, other practices, they're important. But when we shift our focus from Him to other things, we'll be like the Ephesian church. They had a great confession of faith. You know about that. But when we shift our focus from the Christ, the Son of the living God, we are in danger of slipping off the rock and leaving our first love just like the Ephesian church. Does the Ephesian church still exist? We have to say, no, it doesn't. Not as an entity. Now, its spirit continues. The church, that's the point. There's always going to be the church 
uh, that Jesus is building in this world, but individual churches can go dark. And that can happen to us, which we, and it will happen if we lose our identity in Him. In Him. And so may the light of Christ continue to shine through us as we, His church, proclaim the gospel, the two things we're involved with, in His building, proclaiming the gospel and walking in the order that He has established for us until the end of this age.